Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. As we turn there in John chapter 4, we are going to continue this encounter that we began looking at last Sunday, an encounter between Jesus and this woman at the well, an encounter that Jesus himself purposed, planned, and pursued. And in so doing, in this encounter, he is breaking down all kinds of barriers. He is breaking all kinds of social protocols and cultural expectations by not only just conversing with her, but what he says to her and with her, a woman of considerable ill repute. And I told you last week that we can outline this encounter into three sections and three headings. Last week, we looked at water. As Jesus said, I am the living water. Next week, we'll consider her witness as she goes back into her village to tell about Jesus. But this week, we're going to look at this subject of worship. Interestingly enough, as the conversation with Jesus and this woman at the well meanders, it lands on this subject of worship. And so that's why I've entitled my message, True Worship. This week, I came across a true story of a newlywed couple named Doug and Sylvia Witt. After their late-night wedding ceremony and the reception, and after they finally were able to get in the car with their heads covered in rice, they made the long trip to the hotel that Doug had booked for their honeymoon. And they finally arrive at the hotel late at night. He leads her into the honeymoon suite and carries her across the threshold. As they turn the light on, to much to his surprise and horror, the hotel room that he booked only had a sleeper sofa in it. And worse, the bathroom was not even a full bathroom, just a half bath with only a toilet and sink, not a shower, even a tub. Well, it was so late and they were so tired, they tried to make the best of it. The next morning, he got up and he went down to the clerk and he was going to complain and share his disappointment about this room. And the clerk said, well, didn't you open the door? And he said, what door? I thought that was just a closet. Well, he goes back upstairs and opens the door, and there's this beautiful king-sized bed with rose petals spread all over it, a beautiful bathroom with a deep soaking tub. And Doug says, the only mistake I made that night was not opening the door. And I think for many Christians, when it comes to worship, when it comes to what we've just allegedly done together. We can come in this room and we can come into this place. We can sing songs and pray prayers, but have we opened the door to all that God has for us? Have we opened the door to authentic, genuine, true worship? As we again continue in this conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well, it does take an interesting turn to the subject of true worship. And in the passage we're going to study today, we find the most comprehensive instruction from the lips of Jesus on the subject of worship in the entirety of the Bible. Now, if you were not with us last week, let me summarize verses 1 through 15, this initial part of the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. We really learned three things. First, this conversation was by Jesus very purposeful. This was not a random chance. It was not an accidental meeting. No, he purposed and he planned for this divine appointment. Secondly, we learned that Jesus was, in fact, pursuing her. He was looking for her to save her. And in this pursuit of of this woman of ill repute, 
Jesus breaks down all kinds of barriers to get to her. Cultural barriers, racial barriers, religious barriers, ethnic barriers, societal barriers, gender barriers, moral barriers. He busts them down to pursue this woman who so desperately needed to be rescued from a life of sin. Thirdly, we saw last week that Jesus offers to her this great provision of eternal life. And he uses a metaphor, appropriately so, there by this well of living water. If she would simply drink, if she would simply believe, welling up with her would be a spring of living water. As he reveals to her the deep aching and longing in her heart, an aching and longing she was seeking to fulfill and satisfy by other means. The other means, as we'll see today, is a string of relationships with men. And so that's the setup for where we are in verse 16 through 26. And again, this is the most comprehensive instruction on the subject of worship from the lips of Jesus in all four Gospels. And I think perhaps we can use this as an opportunity to take some personal inventory for ourselves. What does our worship look like? And does it line up with how Jesus describes and defines it? So look with me in your Bibles as I read verses 16 through 26. This is the word of God. Listen to it. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me ask you a question. What do you call this event we're in right now? This thing we're doing right now? If you look in your bulletin, hopefully you have a bulletin. I grabbed one on the way in the door like many of you did. You can open the bulletin up, and inside you'll see this little heading that says weekly calendar underneath where it says Welcome home. Weekly calendar. This time, 1045, what does it say we're doing? Worship service. Hmm. You look on Wednesday, our students at 630 will have what? Student worship. Look on the back of our bulletin. My son Trent is serving as interim youth and worship arts. We are in the process of interviewing and looking for a permanent minister of youth and worship arts. And just a little update about that. This Tuesday, our elders will be interviewing who we believe is a very promising candidate. You prayed for us. Nick led us to pray for this process last Sunday morning. 
Your prayers have been answered. We believe we have a very promising candidate who we will be interviewing Tuesday evening. So pray for us around 7.30 for that meeting. So here is worship. We sometimes call this room the worship center. It's a sanctuary for worship. We spend most of our time as a church staff, and I spend most of my time planning, praying, preparing for worship. So worship, at least on paper, looks like it's a very big deal to us, that it's very important. Now, as obvious as all that is, I would encourage you to keep in mind that when we gather together in this place at this hour, we are not gathering primarily to be entertained. Though there may be some entertainment elements, it's not for entertainment. We're not gathering here even for fellowship among family members, though we certainly say that would be a good and godly consequence of our gathering together, but that's not the ultimate purpose. We're not even here to be educated, though I hope when you leave here you've learned something. All of those things are for naught if they do not bring us and motivate us to worship, to worship our Creator. Most of us in the room today, we would say, Lookout Valley Baptist Church is my church home. This is where I am committed. And we need to realize that coming to church and worshiping is not always simultaneous. You can come to church for days, for weeks, for even a lifetime and never worship. It's not automatic that just because you gather in this place that you're going to worship although there should be no missing the fact that that is, in fact, why we are here. We gather to sing, to pray, to preach, to share in order that we might worship our God. And further, we hope that this time together as a family would propel us to regular daily personal worship. Well, three things about true and authentic worship I want us to consider from this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well The first thing is this. Number one, God perceives if it is in you. That's the first point. Number one, God perceives if it is in you. God knows why you're here. God knows why you've come. God knows what's in your heart. It is very possible that you've spent the first 45 minutes we've shared together and not worshipped. Why? Because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, that may seem somewhat out of place, uh, somewhat random, but it's all part of Jesus's purpose to, one, reveal to this woman who he truly is, and to, two, save her from her life of sin. This is one of the things that we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always multiple steps in front of everyone else. People tried to trap him. People tried to ensnare him. People thought they could play this spiritual game of chess and corner him. And Jesus is always multiple steps ahead of where they thought they were. And the same is true with this woman at the well. And the same is true with you and I. Jesus knows you. He knows what you're up to. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He's always multiple steps ahead of you. And just like with this woman, he knows you. And so he says to her, "Um, go call your husband. Now, if you remember from last week, 
when Jesus spoke with her, he spoke with her about living water. And so as I studied the passage this week, verse 15 is about living water, and then all of a sudden, abruptly, Jesus changes the subject. It seems like he didn't clarify to her. Verse 15, it seems like she's still a little confused. She's thinking physically water, and he's speaking spiritually water. It seems she's confused. Why didn't he explain it further? Why didn't he clarify? No, he just changes the subject abruptly. In fact, fact, look at verse 15 again from last week. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That's the last word spoken about water in this conversation. Jesus changes the subject abruptly. Go call your husband and come here. And so as I was thinking about it, I didn't fully grasp what, what is he doing here? As I meditated on it, this is kind of where I landed. I could be wrong. This is my sanctified imagination, and I may be proven wrong in glory. But here's what I suppose. I suppose that as she was drawing this water, she picked up probably the stick that had two water jugs connected to it to carry back to her home. And as she turned to walk away, hey, give me this water so I don't have to come here and draw water again, Jesus says, hey, go get your husband and come back. This stopped her dead in her tracks. Jesus touched a very sensitive nerve. Hey, why don't you go call your husband? Come back here. And her instant reflex was to turn back around and say, I don't have a husband. I have no husband. Now, this was technically true. She didn't have a husband. You know, we as human beings are masters at saying something that is technically true for the purpose of keeping hidden things that are really true. You know what I'm saying? We can say something that is technically true. Someone asks us something. We can say a technically true statement. All the while, we're hiding what they really want to know. This is great in children. We see this very early on. We're heading towards summer when you're going to be loading the minivan with your children, heading on the vacation. Dad, tell him to stop touching me. What does he say? I'm not touching her. At that moment, it's technically true. He's not touching her. But he's been touching her the whole time, right? Lawyers are very skilled at this. They cross-examine the witness and ask questions to get answers that are technically true to conceal the real truth that tells the story. And this woman, she says, I don't have a husband. Technically true. In fact, notice Jesus even says that technically that's true. Look at verse uh, 16, Jesus said to her, or 17, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is technically true. (laughs) This woman has cycled through men, or men have cycled through her. Either way, no doubt the situation has left her cold and dead inside. Friends, women are not made for serial sexual partners and relationships. It kills them inside over time. Men aren't made for it either, though they think they are. I have no husband. You're right in saying you've had no husband. You've had five of them, and the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not your covenant marriage partner either. Jesus knew this woman better than she knew herself, and he would not let her walk away 
without bringing up this subject. And this should inform us. This should inform us in our evangelism. This should inform us in our preaching. You see, a lot of churches kind of wear off the rough edges of Christianity. They just want to talk about the positive benefits of coming to church, of having a relationship with Jesus. You come to Jesus, you'll have a meaningful life. You'll have living water. But they never touch on sin. Jesus talked about the promise of a meaningful life of living water, but you can't get there, faith, without also having repentance. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now, you're in sin. This is adultery. This is fornication. He's not your husband. He will deal with our sin as Savior. This is where true worship begins. We must recognize God knows all, God sees all, and God will reveal all in order that we will truly worship Him. We must confess our sin to God. Look at this familiar 1 John 1.9. We all know this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see that little gobbledygook right there after the word confess. It's the Greek word homologeo, and I wanted to put that there so you understand what the word confess means. It's a compound word, homo, which means the same. Logeo means to speak. It's from the noun form of logos, which means word. So literally the word confess means to say the same thing, to speak the same. When we confess our sins to God, We are saying, I agree with you, God. What I have done is wrong. It is evil. It is wicked. It is against your law. I confess. I agree with you, God, about my sinfulness. This is what confession is. And this is where worship begins. We must confess. We must agree with God the way he views our sinfulness. God perceives whether or not it is in you. We come in agreement with his assessment. This is fundamental and foundational to true worship. Here's the second thing. Number two, God prescribes it to you. God is the one who prescribes true worship to you. Who gets to determine what true worship looks like? The worshiper or the one being worshipped? Who sets the priorities for what worship is? Do we establish the guidelines for worship? Do we set the components of worship, the elements of worship? Do we get to determine what true worship is, or does the one being worshipped? Us or God? I think the answer is obvious. God sets the rules for worship. You know, sometimes it's difficult to tell when reading the Bible, because we don't have voice inflection and that kind of thing in the text, whether or not there is intended humor. The Bible as a whole is not a comedy book. It's not a book of humor. But there are instances where it seems there's a bit of humor here. (laughs) Jesus says, bring your husband here. I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is technically true. And then notice verse 19 how she responds. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I, I... found that funny. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now, what made me think of this is 
Women who have had multiple marriage relationships have developed a keen capacity of a quick wit with men. (laughs) Have you seen that before? I could be wrong, but I think that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. But what she's saying is also true. Sir, I perceive, because we've never met before, you don't know me, though you may know something of my reputation because I'm out here in the middle of the day when none of the other women come. How could he possibly have known she's had five husbands and she's currently shacking up with a guy who's not her husband? How could he possibly have known that unless he was a prophet? He had some supernatural insight. And so what she says is true. But here's what's curious. She is fully aware that he has some divine insight. She's fully aware that he is, in fact, some type of prophet. And so she comes to this person with this elevated capacity, and she immediately changes the subject. She changes the subject. I mentioned at the beginning of this message, this is the most comprehensive instruction on worship from Jesus, but Jesus is not the one who brought up the subject. She brought up the subject of worship, and he is happy to take the conversation in that direction. If you met someone who could tell you everything you've ever done, who could identify every motive of your heart, what's the one question you'd want to ask him? What's the one question she asked him? It's a curious one. Look again at verse 20. Here's a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, the commentators I read this week were somewhat divided on what her motivation or what her intention was in bringing up this religious controversy, and that's what it is. She brings up this controversy, and and some think that because she saw she was dead to rights, she was like a deer in the headlights, under the spotlight of Jesus' omniscience, this is a diversion tactic. Uh, Let's not talk about my husband's. Let's not talk about the man I'm living with now. Let's bring up a religious controversy. And I've experienced this. Maybe you have too in a witnessing situation. I can be sharing the gospel with somebody. I can be talking about how we're accountable to God, how we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of God. Well, let me ask a question. How do you know the Bible's true? Religious controversy. Let's divert attention from my sin to some spiritual controversy. That seems to be maybe what she's doing. And this would have certainly been a religious controversy. It would have been front and center in their time of conversation. Why? Because where they are at Jacob's well in Samaria, Samaria, there would have been a mountain in view called Mount Gerizim. And on the top of that mountain would have been the ruins of the Samaritan temple of worship. Now, let me just give you a little bit of history here. Don't glaze over as I give you this history. Where did the Samaritans come from? Who are they as an ethnicity and as a people? Well, in 721 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes, were ransacked and killed and led away captive by the Assyrians. And from that time forward, for all intents and purposes, the northern 10 tribes of Israel ceased to exist. The only thing left of Israel are the southern kingdom, the southern two tribes of Judah. Now, when that happened in 721 B.C., those who were not killed or taken away captive stayed there in the region. Assyrians stayed in the region in that land, and they intermarried with the Israelites who were still there. And they adopted their religious practices. They adopted their worldview. And this is where the Samaritans came from, from that coming together of the Israelites and the Assyrians. 
Now, the Samaritans, as a people, religiously, they still saw their lineage all the way back to Abraham. They believed Abraham was their father. In fact, they believed the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, those books written by Moses, and they would see that as the authoritative scripture. They said, this is what they believed. Now, the Pentateuch, the book they believed, did not prescribe specifically where the temple of God was to be constructed. That would come later in Israel's history. So the Samaritans chose, they're in the region of Samaria, south of Galilee, north of Judea, chose this Mount Gerizim. Why did they choose that mountain? An interesting situation. There were, in the region of Palestine, in the Promised Land, there were these two mountains right in the middle of the Promised Land. These mountains faced each other. You had Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And these mountains, right in the middle of the Promised Land, the the Israelites were given specific instruction to conduct a ceremony once they conquered and entered the Promised Land. The ceremony was basically this. When you enter the Promised Land, take six of the 12 tribes and put them on Mount Gerizim. Take the other six tribes and put them on Mount Ebal. And here's the ceremony. The six tribes on Mount Gerizim were to pronounce out loud all the blessings that were to come upon Israel if they obeyed the law of God. Those who were on Mount Ebal were to pronounce all the curses that would come upon Israel if they disobeyed the law of God. Understand? So look at what the summary statement is in Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And we know Moses did not get to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua, his successor, did. And we find in Joshua chapter 8 that they did, in fact, perform this ceremony under the instruction of God. They got on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they spoke to one another both the blessings and the cursing of either obeying or disobeying the law of God. Now, back to the Samaritans. They accepted the first five books of the Bible, which in Deuteronomy said that Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. So they concluded this should be where we build a temple. And they really built it kind of to rival the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. Something happened on Mount Gerizim in the 2nd century B.C., around 140 B.C., and that is a Jewish military figure came and destroyed that temple and left it in ruins. In response, sometime later, some Samaritans went into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and spread human bones throughout the temple during the Passover, which made it ceremonially unclean so they couldn't celebrate Passover like they'd want to at the highest and holiest holiday of Passover. You can see why there's some animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. You can see why John says in that parenthetical statement, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this is the woman's question. Maybe a diversion tactic, but it was the central question between Samaritans and Jews. What's the right mountain? Is it Mount Gerizim, where we've worshipped for centuries, or is it Mount Zion? This rabbi, you're a prophet. Let's settle this mountain question once and for all. And with all the other ethnic baggage between these two groups, This was really the central question between their division. What's the right mountain? In fact, I want to point out something to you from the Gospel of Luke that you may not have noticed before. In Luke chapter 9, notice what the Bible says. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, that's to be 
crucified and resurrected, he set his face to go where? To Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people in this Samaritan village did not receive him. Why not? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Because Jesus made the choice. Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? Samaria or Jerusalem? He set his face to Jerusalem. This is the answer of the mountain controversy. So they didn't receive him in this village of Samaria. And of course, his disciples, James and John, had a very mature response to their rejection of Jesus. What did they say in verse 54? And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, back off, guys. He turned and rebuked them. Again, this gives you some insight into the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So this woman is asking perhaps a spiritual diversion, but it is the most pressing question. Which mountain is the right mountain? Well, I get all that to say the answer that Jesus gives. He answers her question exactly the way you might expect a prophet to answer. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's he saying in verse 21? A regime change is coming. A regime change is coming. There's dawning a new day when this whole mountain controversy that has divided the Samaritans and the Jews for 700 years, the hour is coming when worshiping the Father will not be confined to a mountain in the Middle East. Now, Jesus is not evading her question, and it's not that Jesus is refusing to answer her question, refusing to take sides. He just wants her to know this whole mountain question, it's irrelevant in the not-too-distant future. He does, in fact, choose sides. Notice at verse 22, he says to her, you as a Samaritan, worship what you do not know. We as Jewish people, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Not only does salvation come from the Jewish people, not only is it predicted in the Jewish scripture, but the man standing before her who is salvation personified is a Jewish man. And the way he puts it, is somewhat startling. You worship, all your activity, all your sacrifices, all your ecstatic practices, and all that, you're worshiping what you do not know. Samaritans' worship was apart from true knowledge. And this is a lesson for us. Listen, someone may be very sincere in their worship, They can be very passionate, very heartfelt, but like the Samaritan worship, perhaps their worship is separated from the truth. She worshiped the Samaritan's worship, but they worshiped what they didn't know. And this gets to the crux of my second point. God is the one who prescribes what true worship is. He says how he is to be worshiped. Again, Jesus said, you worship what you do not know. And I would ask you this morning, are you worshiping someone you do not know? Are you going through the activity of worship 
for someone you do not know. Many people in our educated and advanced society will wax eloquently about their concept of who God is. It's always some kind of foggy, mysterious entity. We can't really understand or know him, and there is some truth to that. God is transcendent, but we are not left without information about who God is. God has revealed himself first generally in creation. We can see his glory, his divine nature, his attributes. But God has revealed himself specifically in the special revelation of his word, the Bible, and through the unique revelation of his son, Jesus. Therefore, we can worship with knowledge. There are some who think, well, all religions are really basically the same. They're going up just different sides of the mountain to God. And Jesus says to this woman, you're climbing the wrong mountain. (laughs) You're not even at the right mountain. In fact, look at the next slide. Sincerity does not save. As our communities, our city, our region becomes increasingly multicultural, increasingly diverse, we will meet many people who are incredibly sincere in their beliefs. I have living across from me a very sincere Muslim. There are in our community of Lookout Valley many very sincere Hindus. We will come across very sincere Buddhists, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jewish people. Sincerity does not save. The Jehovah's Witness can be so sincere that every Saturday they're spending eight hours knocking on doors. They're very sincere, more sincere than many of us, but they're sincerely wrong about who Jesus is. Sincerity in your faith certainly matters, but of utmost importance is not the sincerity of your faith, but the object of your faith. Who do you believe in? Who do you trust in? Is he the God of the Bible? Is he the Savior Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture? You can say, I really believe, but that's having faith in faith. I really believe in Jesus. That's having faith in Christ, and that's what ultimately matters. This is an important part of worship, that we worship according to what is true, according to what God has revealed in his word. We worship what we know. So that's number one, God perceives if true worship is in you. Number two, God prescribes what true worship is to look like. But here's the third and final thing. God pursues true worship from you. God is seeking people to worship him. God is pursuing true worship. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 23 begins with Jesus using this very prophetic phrase, the hour is coming. That's very prophetic. In fact, in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus uses this term or this phrase, the hour is coming, he's almost exclusively referring to the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. This is the second time in the conversation 
that he says the hour is coming, but this time he adds a twist. In verse 21, he says, the hour is coming when neither on Mount Gerizim or on Mount Zion will you worship. What does that mean? Mount Gerizim, the central place of worship, the temple of the Samaritans, destroyed in ruins, 140 BC. Mount Zion, the Jewish temple, Herod's temple, 40 years from this conversation that Jesus is having with the woman at the well, it will be a pile of rubble, never to be rebuilt again. And Jesus is saying, true worship is not about a place. True worship is not about a mountain. And that's why as Christians, friends, we don't have to take spiritual pilgrimages to holy sites. We can worship God right here. But you don't even have to be right here. You ever worship God in your car? Just keep your eyes open, right? You ever worship God at home? By yourself? With your family in the morning around the dinner table? It's not a, a Mecca. It's not a spiritual pilgrimage to some side. I'd love to go to Jerusalem one day, but I don't have to go there to worship. We can worship God here. True worship won't happen on Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion because of what Christ will accomplish on Mount Calvary. This is why Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here. What does he mean by that? The fundamental reality of worship, woman at the well, he's standing right in front of you. The hour is coming and it's now here. But then Jesus identifies these two irreducible qualities of true worship. Notice again what he says. He says, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 24, he repeats it. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We've seen this word must in this gospel, haven't we? You must, Nicodemus, be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. John the Baptist says, I must decrease. He must increase. Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. And here he says, the true worshipers must, (laughs) it's a non-negotiable, have these two qualities, worship in spirit and worship in truth. Well, if these are the two non-negotiable qualities Jesus gives for authentic worship that he says not once but twice to this woman, we might ought to know what those are, right? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? First, let's think about worshiping in spirit. Now, it's clear here that Jesus is not talking about the Holy Spirit, though certainly the Holy Spirit is involved in our authentic worship. But in the Greek language and also in the English translation we have before us, he doesn't use the definite article, the which normally when the Holy Spirit is referred to, it always is preceded by that word, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is why our English Bible translators put the word Spirit with a lowercase s, not a capital S. This is not the Holy Spirit, but God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in lowercase spirit and truth. Well, what does this mean? He's talking about the human spirit. What he's saying is worship is more internal then it is external. Now, certainly, there are external things we do. We've sung today. We've stood. We've sat. We've bowed. We've lifted our hands, many of us. We speak. There are external things, 
But he says, fundamentally, true worship is not about the externals. The externals is just a consequence of, hopefully, what's happening on the inside. He says, true worship is spirit. It's a matter of the heart. And he also says, true worship is done in truth. In other words, we must have a proper perspective of who God is. We can't come to worship God and worship him by our own imaginations of what we think God is like or who God is. We must worship him as God has revealed himself in his holiness, in his justice, in his mercy, in his love, compassion, and grace. There are some who view God as distant and unloving. That's not God. There are others who view God as their buddy, their pal, their cosmic bellhop who just tops at every request and fulfills their needs. That ain't God either. We must worship him in truth. In fact, notice how Hebrews 12 puts it. I read this at the beginning of our service together. The author of Hebrews says, on the inspiration of the Spirit, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He ain't your pal and buddy. He is the ruler of the universe. Worship him as such. To worship God is to worship him in truth for who he is. And this truth of the nature of God as he's revealed himself in his word will foster in us acceptable worship. Like I said a moment ago, sincerity will not save you. Sincere faith in the truth of who God is will. And ultimately, the truth of who God is is that he is the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who sent forth his son Jesus to be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of every language, people, tribe, and tongue. And that included this serial, adulterous, Samaritan woman. After Jesus makes this revelation about true worship, how does she respond? Look at verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Maybe when Messiah comes, he'll settle once and for all this worship war, this dispute between the mountains. This man who comes, this Messiah, he'll be able to tell us all things. He, he may even be able to tell us how many husbands we've had. Notice what Jesus said. Absolutely stunning. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, we can't see this in the English, but that sentence has the phrase in Greek, ego, amen which literally translated is, I am. I am he. I am the Messiah. And I find it stunning that in John's gospel, the first person Jesus clearly identified who he was, the Messiah, the Savior, is this sin-soaked Samaritan serial Adulterer. He revealed to her 
I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. He who speaks to you, I am. What an astounding admission. The Father is seeking worshipers. And he found one at a well in Samaria. How do I know she became a worshiper? Come back next week. (laughs) Witness. She goes into her village, the village that had scorned her, the village that she was a social pariah in because of her life. She would have been considered like a prostitute. She boldly proclaims Jesus as Savior. By a well in Samaria, Jesus found a true worshiper in this sin-soaked Samaritan woman. And my conclusion is not long. It's just a question. Will he find one here? Will you find a true worshiper in your pew? Will he find one in you? That leads to my last thought. God desires for us to have an accurate knowledge of him and to respond to that accurate knowledge, that truth, accordingly. Worship, true worship, spiritual worship, heartfelt worship. Listen, before you close your minds, close your eyes, close your Bibles, I just feel impressed this morning. There may be somebody in this room today, maybe multiple somebodies, who walking into this room, you are not a worshiper, but you've understood maybe on some basic level your need for a Savior and who Jesus is and what he's come to do to save you, to take the penalty for your sin, to die in your place, to receive the wrath you deserve and to be resurrected from the dead to give you new life. Two responses to this good news that he called for in this woman at the well and he's calling for in you. Number one, believe. Drink the water. Have faith in Jesus. Number two, repent. Turn from your sin and your selfish life and turn to Jesus as the ruler and the Lord of your life. In just a moment, we're going to sing And as we sing, I'm going to be down here in front. Come talk to me. Let's get this straight. Give your heart to Jesus and become a true worshiper today.